everyone, and welcome to Jinhead. Uh, we have a little bit of feedback. We have a little bit of feedback. We're going to try again. Um, thank you for joining us on Shinday, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm Abigail Majola. And I'm Toby Moffat. Uh, thanks again for, for joining us. Uh, this is a show called November 4th, as you probably know by now. And you've probably suspected, if you hadn't been with us earlier on earlier shows, that uh, we chose that uh, title for the show because we're assuming that it's the day after the election and the day after Donald Trump is gone, or at least we know he's been defeated. And so we need to try to think about what we as citizens should be doing uh, on that day after the election, not just thinking about rebuilding America, but reimagining it. We'll have experts, elected officials, authors, and advocates talk about climate change, immigration, criminal justice reform, healthcare, and other critical issues. Toby, you may have to hear yourself. Yourself. Sorry, there's about. a lot of back, a lot back, of back, back noise. noise. Uh, okay. Sorry about that. Are uh, you having a little uh, bit of uh, feedback there? Uh, maybe we can get that that fixed. Um, this this show is a really important one because as we look down the the long list of things that we're in the process of examining and the issues and how they should be reimagined on November fourth, uh, the plight of cities and the city of Washington particularly, uh, since we're coming to you from DC, uh, the city of Washington, what, what becomes of the cities? There's, there's a lot of talk about suffering, a lot of talk about these cities teetering uh, economically. And today we're going to talk to a candidate for the DC council at large seat. Matter of fact, there are 20 candidates in this race. It's one of the more incredible races for a DC council seat in the history of, uh, of the district. And our guest today is Marcus Goodwin. Uh, Marcus is a, a really interesting young guy who was uh, head of the uh, Washington Young Dems uh, for a period of time. Uh, he's had um, uh, experience uh, running before and uh, campaigning for others. He was born in the Brookland section, grew up in the Columbia Heights uh, area. And uh, he's currently working for the Neighborhood Development Company, which is a real estate company. Uh, so, Marcus, welcome. Good to have you. Having me on. Thanks for being here. Yeah, sure. Great. Great. Good to see you and good to hear your voice again. Um, thanks for being so, with us. So, um, as a reminder to the audience, uh, we have folks who are on the Shindig platform. Um, as a reminder to everyone on this platform, um, please submit any questions that you might have during the conversation um, by clicking the question mark on your screen. Um, or you can raise your hand um, if you'd like to come to the stage and talk um, to Marcus directly and ask him a live question. Um, so Marcus, uh, can you tell us a couple of sentences about um, why you decided to run for office? You know, what about current leadership and the current direction of DC um, really, you know, inspired you to run? Thank you. As Toby mentioned in the introduction, I'm a DC native. I'm the fifth of eight children growing up in the District of Columbia. And we've seen a city dramatically change both demographically and economically. And it hasn't been to the favor 
of lower and middle wage earners. So working class families in our recent times have been squeezed in the district, but I know that power of our city and local government, uh, which has a dramatic ability to impact people's lives for the better. So now in light of COVID-19, it's critically important for us to get local, homegrown, knowledgeable, uh, experienced, community, compassionate leaders to the table, making decisions, ensuring that everyone's voices are heard, and that we don't continue to have the rapid gentrification that has really characterized the past 20 years in the District of Columbia. Yeah, and so um, digging a little bit deeper then, um, you've talked about COVID, um, has a disproportionate impact on black and brown people um, throughout the nation, um, also in this great city. Um, there's also ongoing racial injustice in almost every industry system in this country. And so in DC alone, we've seen um, protesters um, who are demanding the country address racism, um, you know, finally or hopefully through um, concrete anti-racist policies and actions. Um, they've been brutalized by federal and local police officers. And so I'd love to start off with a strong question, but um, what are your thoughts on calls to defund or abolish the police? Yeah, I think the bigger issue that we're facing is that our police forces are asked to shoulder the burden of all of our public safety challenges. And frankly, as cities or states around the country, we need to start to look and reimagine what public safety looks like and start to deal with the underlying root causes of crime in our cities, especially violent crime, which is increased here in the district and start to remedy those before we're dealing with the, uh, the symptoms or the consequences of us neglecting our communities. So instead of increasing our allocation to having police be more militarized, I think we need to start focusing on getting addiction treatment specialists into communities, getting mental health experts into communities, and also focusing on why are so many violent crimes occurring now more than ever before. And I think the economic turmoil starts to point toward uh, the inequities in our economic structure for people who are involved in our criminal justice system or haven't finished school or simply lack the opportunity because of systemic discrimination. These are all things that we can remedy with legislation. And that's what I hope and intend to do as a member of council. Marcus, you got a lot of attention, uh, even some national attention in uh, recent days over this emancipation statue in Lincoln Park. Yep. Um, what, how are you feeling about that? I mean, is that is that in a way a sort of a distraction from the the mega issues that you'd face on the council and, you know, inequality and uh, poor children, homeless children and those critical issues? Uh, or, or is is this uh, whole issue of the emancipation statue more of a metaphor as you see it? Yeah, I, I would say the latter in that it's really an allegory for where we are in society. We see Abraham Lincoln standing above the depiction of an African-American who is supposed to have been freed and a representative of a man who freed himself with the fugitive who was captured under the Fugitive Slave Act. So I've taken this as an opportunity for us to focus on where we are in society, 
We have a racial wealth gap in the district that is among the worst in the country. Uh, the white to black wealth gap is 81 to one, meaning that the median black family in DC has $3,500 in net worth and the median white family in DC has $284,000 in net worth. If that isn't a descriptive representation of this statue, I don't know what is. So I think we've taken this as an opportunity to highlight the contemporary struggles that we're going through. And now we can legislative, uh, legislatively start to fix these problems that have happened uh, you know, over the past 150 some odd years since the supposed liberation of our people that we now have to start to deal with in ways that past generations have maybe ignored more than they should have. Yeah, so how about these these mega issues? Uh, uh, I, I've, I've known you a little bit and I, I suspect that there are two or three or four things that you're thinking of that are revolutionary almost in in nature, the, the kinds of things you try, try to get done. Um, on that wealth gap, what are they? Yeah, everyone, I think four weeks ago was talking about systemic structural legislative changes that we can take on to change our society for the better. And it's really fallen flat. So I wanna pick back up that energy and start talking about real solutions. One of which is to focus on closing or bridging that wealth gap in the District of Columbia, to see that we have such a large racial wealth gap, I wanna create a program called Equality Bonds, where every child in the city is given a trust fund with $1,000. And depending upon their parents' income from ages zero to 18, if their parents stay in the District of Columbia, are filing taxes in the district and paying taxes, they'll be given a different allocation year after year where the lowest or middle income earners will earn the most toward that trust and the highest income earners won't earn any additional contribution to that trust. So when these children and these young adults turn 18 years old, they'll start to have some means so that they can support themselves to either pay for higher education, start a business, invest in themselves as entrepreneurs. So we can start to create real solutions that's creating a more equitable society instead of just talking about it or paying contractors and middlemen to start to accomplish that. That's one yeah, so that, Okay, the, go ahead. The other would be helping minority home ownership, especially for blacks and Latinos in the city. We have a home purchase assistance program for first time home buyers, but the, a large majority of people who are benefit from, benefiting from it are, are white Washingtonians. We need to start to have more equity in housing and fight against systemic housing discrimination. Being very intentional about creating more black and Latino homeowners will also help us close the wealth gap because for 62% of Americans, the largest component of their net worth is their home. So it stands to reason that we should start to create more home ownership opportunities for minorities who have been systemically discriminated against and face uh, both housing, uh, policing, uh, and educational discrimination on many levels that make it hard to recover and catch up. Understood. So uh, what would you, you're going to have to make these tough choices, though, if you're on the council, right? 
Right. What would you uh, would you take money away from, say, the streetcar project on H Street and put it into rental assistance? Would you do? Can you give us some examples of, of the kinds of choices you'd make? Yeah, uh, I'm happy you brought that up because obviously construction projects are very capital intensive. So something like the streetcar is going to be a nine figure investment we're making, and we have to start to balance our priorities. And I would focus us on ensuring not just rental assistance, but ownership assistance. I want to start to build people onto a path of economic self-sustainability, start to ensure that they have employment that pays them enough that they can afford to live in this city, which is incredibly expensive, and they have the skills that they need to be able to adapt to a changing workforce. Even the world now is different than it was six months ago before we had this COVID shutdown. So there's so many specialties that we need to start training our people for so that they can provide for themselves. And maybe I would defer against investing in some capital investments that aren't critical, maybe um, some school renovations. But I know that there are many ways that we can start to invest in making more money for the city. Uh, we have a large real estate portfolio. A lot of these properties lay vacant, but they could be affordable home ownership opportunities, affordable condominium opportunities, um, or business and economic development or job training center opportunities. So that's the kind of thinking that I'm bringing to the table. Yeah, great. that's great. Um, and I have probably two follow-up questions. So um, when you talk about baby bonds, you've talked about um, using parental income versus parental wealth. And I'm wondering why that is, um, because those two are very distinct, right? Um, so that's my first question. Yeah, uh, well, I think if we are looking at wealth, I really derive from my personal experience, knowing and understanding that I grew up in a very working class family. My mother is a DC public school teacher. My father's a scientist and you know, their aggregate income wasn't six figures. So uh, growing up, I always knew that our family of very modest means was able to provide for us, but there are some opportunities that we weren't able to take full advantage of. And uh, what you know, many people have titled baby bonds, our version in the district, I, I call it equality bonds because that's the intended impact of this legislation. Uh, these equality bonds would start to create more opportunities for people who won't have the experience that I have of, you know, struggling with paying back student debt, uh, having the economic insecurity of really having to work for as much money as possible, as opposed to purely pursuing your dreams and knowing you have the opportunity and a little bit of room for self-discovery. So uh, while I very much appreciate my professional experience, I know that not everyone's gonna be in the same situation and they need to have society create opportunities for them to provide for themselves and pursue their dreams to the fullest extent possible. I hope that fully covered you know, where we're intended yeah. to go with that. Yeah, part. no, no, that's great. And um, so thinking, so you, you've started talking about um, the ways in which we can increase the housing um, supply, right? right. Um, the other piece of this um, that we've seen in the district is that um, there are lots of folks who are living in homes currently that need repairs, right? Um, and those homes are posing severe health risks to them. Um, and I think 
basically back to Toby's question about, um, you know, how do you balance um, the need for increased investment in those repairs? Because I think um, the mayor right now is dedicating 40 million over two years. And what housing advocates have said is we actually need 60 million every single year to do those, um, those repairs. So I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about that um, and, and what you're thinking there in terms of um, a fix or, you know, finding funding for this. Yeah, it, it, it's become really bad in the district. Our public housing stock has been neglected to the point that we're looking at billions of dollars uh, of investment that's needed for repairs. The city of Miami recently turned over thousands of units to a firm to be their external property manager. While they're still public housing units, they've outsourced the property management function and they found the results to be quite incredible that these private firms operate with a higher level of accountability and they have so many units that they're at a scale that they can provide for, uh, you know, like when someone's HVAC system goes out or when there's utility problems or electrical problems that they're handled immediately and there's 24 seven service. I think we need to start looking as a city toward a hybrid model because we're not looking to generate a profit on our public housing anyway. So if we can bid, bid out the 7,000 or some odd units that we have in public housing to a couple different firms so that we're not too heavily leaned onto one, I think that it would work that we could start to have better public housing provided to people. But like I said to Toby, I wanna focus on getting people to self-sustainability, getting them to the private market, getting them to private ownership. Home ownership in the United States has been the most powerful uh, means of creating generational wealth. And we need to create those opportunities for people, not simply keeping them in public housing, which serves as uh, a great benefit for people in society who need support from the government. But if they had the opportunity to make more money, Certainly, we need to provide them with that opportunity and to own their property, we need to support them in being able to do that. So my answer would be that we need to start looking at the options of bidding out contracts from management and asking private companies to manage and up, oversee the repairs because to be frank, the government hasn't been able to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, just a reminder to the audience, uh, if you're, if you're interested in asking a question, you can do it in one of two ways. You can click on that question mark on your screen and uh, be recognized and come to the stage to ask Marcus a question, or you can uh, click the raise your hand and uh, you see that in front of you, I hope. Uh, so, um, Abby? Yeah, so um, actually I did wanna ask another, um, I guess, hard question. <laughs> Um, so we've been talking a lot about housing and how that, um, you know, is helpful. Owning a home is helpful to um, building wealth in this country. But, um, you know, we've seen studies um, over the years from economists about, um, you know, the real fix is reparations, right? Um, and so I'm wondering what you think about that, um, where you fall in this debate. Um, I think there's the question, of course, the practicality of it, like, can this be passed in the United States? But then there is the, you know, if we're thinking big, if we're reimagining, like, is this the thing? Certainly, I think that we should seek to 
uh, right the wrongs of our country. Uh, slavery was the original sin of the United States. And uh, we really systemically, legislatively created barriers that seem insurmountable even to this day. And we're nearly 150 years from the legislation uh, or 155 years from the legislation uh, that was intending to uh, reverse the impacts of uh, the slavery that was allowed in the United States. We've seen many ethnic groups receive reparations of some sort uh, for the challenges, the tragedies, the struggles that they've faced. And I think African-Americans are no different because of the incredible contributions that our ancestors have made to this country. And we certainly should seek any opportunity to right the wrongs that have created generational problems that our cities and our states across the country show that we haven't fully recovered from. So I certainly would be uh, you know, a proponent. And I think a lot of the legislative fixes that I'm intending to propose are both uh, helpful and race conscious, but in a lot of senses, they're race blind because we're creating a better society for all people by ensuring that people have good job opportunities, good educational opportunities, opportunities to own their home, take pride in their communities, and uh, ultimately pursue their dreams in a manner that has been escapable for so many people. So I want to ensure that race conscious, uh, race neutral policies are put into place that very keenly target and will support uh, blacks and Latinos who have faced many challenges that our legislators, uh, present and past, can be uh, blamed for. Where do you where do you come out on uh, the uh, assertion by Black Lives Matter that goes something like this: that uh, they say the mayor is great at going and painting Black Lives Matter on 16th Street uh, between the Hay Adams and the and, and St. John's Church. But when it comes to actually putting the investments in place and, and getting the priorities straight, that would really mean a, a huge leap forward for a huge number of people in the district that she's not, she's not doing those courageous things. You agree with that or you disagree with that or where do you come out on that? I would say that our mayor and every big city mayor in the country is facing the toughest period in history to have to be a mayor. Um, so I certainly like respect that this is the toughest challenge that's ever had to be accomplished. Um, I will say that what I referred to earlier in many people really trying to articulate that they want to see systemic change, but not seeing the follow through has been really a nationwide phenomenon. Um, I think Mayor Bowser has stepped up to the challenge. She's overwhelmingly made the right decision. If you look at you know, what the available options are and the limited information we have now with a second wave of COVID coming back, um, you know, with the requirement for us to put on masks. That said, we're in such a challenging environment, it's hard for anyone to make the right decisions. It's my role as someone who aspires to leadership in the city as a lawmaker, as a legislator, to help promote, listen, and advance ideas that are reflective of the city and the community's values that are gonna start to make our streets safer, our schools provide better quality education, more people, homeowners, 
more people able to support small and local businesses. We don't want to wake up tomorrow and see schools worse off than they were, uh, a Wendy's and Popeye's on every corner where we used to have restaurants, or people continuing to live in public housing without a clear pathway to self-sustainability uh, self and self-sufficiency. And I'm here to ensure that we start to move in the right direction. So I'm here to help. I wanna be a collaborator on the council. I wanna be a listener to the people. I want people in this chat right now to start sending in questions. And I want us to start to advance ideas, not simply you know, stand up on the dais with a gavel, trying to pass laws uh, because we think that it makes sense to us without continuing to get feedback and learn and get smarter from people around us. Marcus, Do we you have were... a question? Yeah, so you're doing our jobs for us, which is great. <laughs> you're making this very easy. Um, folks in the audience, um, again, you can raise your hand if you wanna ask a live question to Marcus. Um, you can also click the question mark on your screen and type text chat your question. Um, I will give folks a second to do that. I'll ask one more question um, about uh, opening schools in August. Um, so we've heard from the highest levels of government, federal governments, and also some state governments, um, this push to reopen, um, even though we've seen a lot of cases, COVID cases rising, um, hospitalizations rising around the country. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the investment that would be needed to either reopen school safely or remote instruction for all students? And what is your experience with, um, you know, district schools, public charter schools um, related to this? Like, are, are we ready to do remote instruction for the foreseeable future? Um, what do we need to be thinking about? Yeah, it's been a huge challenge. Our mayor recently said on July 31st, she's going to make a call because this second wave of COVID is no joke. It seems like our cases in the district are rising, even though more and more people are getting tested the rate of transmission seems like it's going up. So I want to ensure that we're making the right decision. I think the delay makes sense because we're living in a shifting landscape. One thing that we have to start to address, whether we go virtual or we go in-person or we go a hybrid of virtual and in-person is ensuring that everyone has the technological access that they need. In January, before COVID was a thing the way it is now, I said that we need to focus on bridging the digital divide. So many of our young people don't have access to a computer, don't have access to a tablet, don't have access to a smartphone, don't have access to wireless internet. If you try to go on DC Wi-Fi from the hotspots around the city, I haven't seen them working. So to see them start working, we need to have greater investment in our wireless infrastructure around the city, uh, and we also need to focus on getting these devices into the hands of our young people. Uh, there was a significant drop off from March to June of 2020 when young people were supposed to be finishing out the school year that they never logged on. A great number, like almost half of students didn't finish out the school year. So learning loss is a real thing and we're going to suffer from it if come you know, the weeks before Labor Day, we don't have our plan down tight to get school back on track. And frankly, for parents that have young children, they can't be working their job, sitting in front of a computer and managing 
you know, young kids running around the house um, or running in and out of the house, it's just unreasonable to expect, uh, especially when a lot of childcare centers and schools just haven't been allowed to operate. So I want to ensure that we make the right decision. Uh, my thoughts that are that it's going to be some kind of hybrid between in-person and remote learning, but we need to absolutely make the investment in ensuring that everyone gets computer accessibility uh, provided to them if they don't have that readily available, no matter what their parents' economic circumstance is. That's great. So we do have a couple of questions from the audience. Um, I'm going to try and bring one up. Um, let's see if this works. Okay, I'm gonna publish it um, so that you all hopefully see it on the screen. So from Nancy Halpern, Marcus, what does DC do in terms of restaurants and a lot of small businesses if people are still scared to gather and use the Metro and et cetera? Yeah, I, I've seen the city do really, thank you for the question, Nancy, really incredible work desanit uh, or disinfecting and sanitizing our Metro train system throughout the area. Um, I know that we have taken care of our trains in the district and WMATA had uh, a couple different contractors sanitizing or disinfecting them in Maryland and Virginia. Um, for our restaurants, we're currently operating at 50% capacity. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been ordering a lot of my food since March on these, you know, Grubhub, Uber Eats, Seamless. I think the city as much as possible can help support these businesses um, in ensuring that they're able to transition onto these platforms because uh, it's not the easiest thing ever, but ensuring that they can get onto the platform, uh, start to promote getting people to support their business, but also for the restaurants that have outdoor space, ensuring that people are encouraged as much as possible uh, to make their going out dining experiences in an outdoor space because the transmission rate outdoors has been uh, dramatically lower than it has been indoors. So uh, I think the city has an ability to support our restaurants. They recently passed a, a piece of legislation that would provide $100 million in support, of which $38 million would go to our restaurants um, to really support them. People still need to eat as much as they did before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we're just gonna be living in a shifting and transitioning landscape from what we did before. The train just probably won't be operating as much as possible, but we need to find employment opportunity for people that were working for our Metro Area Transit Authority um, so that they can still provide for their families. Thank you, Nancy, for your question. I think we have a live question coming up. Give us one second to switch the screen. Okay. Hey, Marcus, uh, Will Liebner here. Um, we've talked a lot on this call, and then I think it's well-documented that there are a lot of priorities and needs in the city. Um, but you would be a rarity on the council because you actually have a lot of private sector business experience, which not a lot of council members do, frankly. And I think that shows through in the legislation that they sometimes enact. Um, using that experience, I think 
in order to fund a lot of the needs and priorities and initiatives that are required in the city right now, we need to grow our tax base to restore the reserves that we've just dipped into to make up for all the COVID losses and also to bring ourselves as a city out of the pandemic and to fund all these programs. How do we do that? Like um, on the council, what can you do to help make that argument? Thank you for the question, Will. Uh, I really appreciate it. You know, having a strong, robust economy in the district and a budget that's balanced is critically important. I think uh, Toby may know better than anyone else on the call that in the mid 90s, the district was under a federal control board, meaning that all decisions about our budget was made by a federally appointed panel that gave us uh, and granted us the ability to balance our priorities, uh, meaning that the decisions weren't made locally. Uh, we don't wanna go back to a control board era. And certainly if we have a budget that isn't balanced, the federal government reserves the right to take back our budgetary ability. Uh, that means that we need to support our small local business owners. We need to support our local economy. Um, no one on the council, frankly, has had uh, an experience in the private sector um, you know, only a few people have ever even held a job in the private sector for exactly. a period of time. So I do agree that it's critically important for us to start to get different perspectives that understand what it means to be a small business owner, what it means to create housing, what it means to uh, manage a large budget worth hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, to value engineer a budget that's hundreds of millions of dollars to ensure that your priorities and your goals are aligned with what your economic realities are. And our economic reality now in the district is that COVID-19 has had a disastrous public health impact, but also a disastrous economic impact. So with all of our might and all of our resources, we need to help support our local entrepreneurs because they pay taxes, they hire people, they support families, they support communities, they create vibrance in our city, and they create the real character of what DC is. Um, I'm someone who will focus intensely on that, and I would dare say more so than anyone else on the council, and would like to apply my experience in the private sector, working with the bureaucracy in the district to ensure that we're balancing everyone's priorities and keeping a healthy uh, business and budget economy in the district. So thanks for the question. I definitely think that these are voices that we need more of at the table. Yep, I agree. Awesome. So we have another live question and then an additional text question. This is great. Okay. Hello. Hi, I'm Edward Cowan. I want to say hello to Toby. I covered Toby when he was a member of Congress in the 1970s. It's good to see you again. Marcus, I want to ask you, if you were a member of council now, and as you know, council this week has been engaged in a very difficult budget debate. Yep. If you were a member of council now, where would you seek to cut spending to balance the DC budget for 2021? Thank you. That's a great question. Uh, I certainly would seek to uh, 
be a little bit more financially responsible with our government agencies. Uh, I put together an analysis earlier in the budget conversation that saw that really about $400 million uh, could be cut out of the district budget and still be able to balance a majority of our priorities effectively. One thing that we don't have in our district government is real accountability or performance standards and metrics. For example, the Department of Employment Services has a nine-figure budget on an annual basis. They do job training, which is critically needed in the district. But what we don't understand is how many people that are trained in DOES contracted businesses actually end up with a job? That would be a good question to know the answer to. We don't currently. And frankly, the number is really embarrassingly low. Um, more specific places that I think we can cut would be in areas of the capital improvement budget. We budget $1.2 billion in the 2021 budget for capital improvements. That means any of the large construction projects that we think are really a priority in the upcoming year for the city. Um, and I certainly think that while we need to continue to modernize and renovate our schools, uh, some of our capital improvement budget isn't critical and could be delayed for a time when we have a better economy in the district. Uh, finally, I would focus on us creating new revenue sources as the other way to counterbalance how we're treating our budget. And we would do that by having a firmer grasp on our real estate portfolio in the district and start to generate revenue, creating opportunities from that. That means for parking lots that are unused, those could be rented out or for vacant land where there's no uh, strategic plan behind the future of it, we can sell those parcels to start to create a taxable revenue item, uh, a capital Im impact because of the sale itself and creating more economic opportunity and jobs around that area. So those are the areas that I would seek to add money to the budget and cut a little bit away. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Ed, for that. That was, and great, great to see you again after all these, all these decades, I guess I should say. Um, Marcus, I just want to go back uh, to something on these direct cash payments. That was uh, sort of the Cory Booker idea. I think you were talking about that thousand dollars. What yep. about this? Uh, what about really, as we say in this show, reimagining this whole thing and taking a look as they're doing in Ward Eight with this? Uh, they call it Thrive East of the River thing. I think it's called Thrive East of the River where 500 families are getting, um, I forget, a thousand bucks or $1,100 uh, a month, I think it is, for groceries. And then there's counseling looped into that and so forth. Um, it seems that this kind of thing works, right? I mean, you could do it on a scale yep. beyond the the baby bonds as they're, they're called or equality bonds, right? Yeah. And the thought behind the equality bonds, I really like that name more because the intended result is really baked in there, is that we create a pathway for the future and we ensure that the problems that have plagued us in the past now start to have a generational answer. But in terms of providing supplemental assistance today, certainly it's gonna have a good impact. Um, we saw the $600 additional 
to unemployment that the federal government passed that's running out in a week, literally one week from now, um, we are now starting to see that we need this kind of support because people have not been able to get, get back to work and they need the, that money to make ends meet, especially in expensive cities like Washington. And when they do get this money, the program piloted in Stockton, California showed that for the most part, they were buying groceries and clothes, really bare essentials. Um, in spite of how incredible this program has been, it seems to be a temporary solution for a longer term solution, which is really where I yeah. like cutting my teeth. I wanna focus on employment opportunity that pays people a dignified wage that they can start to create economic opportunity for themselves, uh, both in employment, but, the, but then ultimately as an entrepreneur, I want the person who's working as a plumber to own a plumbing company. I want the person who's working as a carpenter to be a carpentry uh, entrepreneur. I want the person who works at the gap to start designing, creating, and opening their own shop. So I don't want people to stay at the same plateau. I'm focused on incre uh, increasing and creating economic mobility for everyone in the district. Um, I do agree that short-term solutions are needed because our problems are drastic, dire, and they're happening in our face but we also need longer term generational solutions. I want to just, uh, we have another question coming, but uh, from a, a member of our audience, but just on this whole topic, I want to take you back uh, to your, uh, shall we say boyhood in <clears throat> Columbia Heights and yeah. um, the role of uh, people like Barbara Moore <clears throat> and Kim Montrell and um, Good Shepherd, I think at that time it was Good Shepherd Ministries. Yeah. Now flash forward, um, a lot of these uh, people that you were fortunate to be with and uh, and and were helped by uh, are doing things like Recovery Cafe um, in Southeast, um, really meaningful work with the homeless, the mentally ill, the recently released from prison people. How do you um, how do you empower those groups more as a councilman than you can right now? Yeah. I really think it takes a really strong economic development program. That means ensuring that our returning citizens have an opportunity to work and they're not discriminated against because of their status. That means that people that struggle with addiction don't continue to get battered by police in their communities, but they actually get the opportunities and the ability to see treatment specialists so that they can recover and overcome but that they also build a community of support and know that people who are legislators, leaders in our city care about them. Um, I also think that folks that uh, suffer from mental illness need to have more care taken for them because it seems like many more people are treated with policing in the criminal justice system when they really need specialists that are uh, trained and specialized in dealing with the issues that they're uh, going through in their life, I think all of us can recover, uh, all of us can recall circumstances in which we meet people that are uh, in troubling economic circumstances, that maybe ask for money and they're brilliant people, they're charismatic people, they're ambitious people, they're just lacking opportunity. So I wanna bridge the opportunity gap and ensure that they start to get the treatment 
the services and the opportunities that they need. And, uh, you know, you mentioned really important people to my life, um, Kim and Barbara, who've dedicated their life to young people in underserved communities and adults in underserved communities and really uh, transitioning their lives. And the impact that they've had on my life personally has been tremendous, but also for so many other people around the city who've had different struggles, they've shown that with focus, attention, and specialists, you can transform lives and uh, turn them for the better. So I appreciate the work of everyone because we all have a role in making this better. It's not just our lawmakers, it's not our police, it's everyone coming together to find solutions that make sense and make lives better. Great, I think that was your President Obama presidential seal moment. <laughs> we have another um, probably last question um, from Mary Ann. I'm gonna try to spotlight her. Mary Ann, are you there? Oh, I think she's connecting. We also, she also types her question, so I could. Oh, hi, Marianne. Hi, Marianne. hi, Marcus. How are you? This was a great presentation. I would love it if you could have a link to this to to your answers that can go out, you know, to a wide array of people in the district because I think this was what we've talked about before and I think it was wonderful. My question though, and I hope, you know, that that, that that'll be possible. I, I don't know if there are technical things that I don't understand. But anyhow, I wanted to ask you about uh, voting by mail, which in the district is is going, everybody's getting a request for an or an absentee ballot. And I wanted to know if you support it and will be promoting it while you're campaigning, because this is a first. And as we know, in the primary, we had very significant problems with, with the voting by mail process. Numerous people who requested a ballot did not get it. And there were huge lines at the very few voting in-person places that we had. Uh, I know I stood outside one of them at Merch and, and um, the line was filled with people who never got the requested um, ballot in the mail. So. I'm hoping that even though you're not a council member yet, that you could have strong influence on the people at the Board of Elections and, and get people, get some checks and balances to ensure that it will, the process will be far improved from before, but also that since it is the process that you will be able to campaign and uh, in support of it um, for November. Thank you, Marianne. That's a great question. And certainly the standard that I hold myself to is that I'm about action and accountability. And though we're not a council member yet, um, <laughs> no. I want to ensure that I'm making now, you a council. <laughs> with your support, I mean, yeah. we're happy to hear Marianne. And I think it's great that everyone's going to get a ballot. This pandemic is not going away anytime soon. So we do need to create the opportunity for people to vote as much as possible without having to be in person. And I think that now that the rule is that not just people who request it, but every registered voter at the address they have on file will be sent out a ballot uh, that will be in a better place. And 
you know, some people are concerned about uh, does this hurt the sanctity of the election? And really, I think that because we all have a unique voter ID, you can only vote once, even if you were to return right. it or show up in person. So there are stopgap measures in place to ensure that people only get to vote once. And I want to ensure that if you uh, need help, that you also get the opportunity to uh, make a last minute request to get a ballot if you never got one in uh, by the, you know, as long as you do so before election day and before the polls close. Um, so I want to be supportive as supportive of that system as possible. I want to put pressure on our board of elections to ensure that they have a system whereby people can make quickly responded to reports about whether uh, their ballot has come oh, or not. And uh, people know the clear date that they can change their address up until. Um, one thing I think is great that the mayor decided is to ensure that they open all 143 voting stations in the city. Uh, the lines, as you said, in Merch and everywhere else in the city for mm -hmm. the primary were incredibly long. People right. were lining up at 8 o'clock and weren't able to vote until 1 a.m. Um, so we need to ensure that that never happens again in the district. And I think opening all 143 polling stations and getting enough volunteers with social distance measures in place is going to help us uh, pull off as seamless as possible in election, uh, given these circumstances that are really tough. So Marianne, I'm here for you. And I think we just need to have clear lines of communication with our board of election. Okay, great, thank you. Thank, thank, thank you, you. Marianne, for that question. And thank you all. We really are happy that you were with us this afternoon for uh, another uh, show of November 4th. Uh, we hope you'll keep uh, thinking about this and reimagining re uh, what we do on a number of uh, issues. We touched on a lot of issues today, but we could talk about climate and climate in an urban setting, climate change and so forth. And we'll do that on uh, on future shows. But Marcus, uh, good luck to you. Uh, and, and, and thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Uh, my sign, the one that's still standing, gives you a sense <laughs> of uh, how we branded the campaign. But my social media is at GoodwinFORDC on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And I'd love to be in touch on email and phone with everyone here in the meeting tonight. I love Shindig. This is a great platform. Yes. Thank you. I'm going to do this again. Awesome. Good luck, Marcus. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you Take all. Take care.